Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I am your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Conversants are Nina Paley and Corinna Cohn, who are the co-hosts of the Heterodorks podcast. In this conversation, we speak about Nina's gender nonconformity growing up and her artistic nature and her relationship to children and womanhood and how that changed over time. And we also talk about Corinna's experience with femininity as a male to female transsexual and the different cultural zeitgeists that are currently battling it out for the souls of our youth and our culture. Be sure to check out their podcast, Heterodorks, links to which will be in the description as well as to their Twitters and other various artistic and philosophical projects. Without further ado, here is Nina Paley and Corinna Cohn. Hello. Hello. Please let it work this time and let me start audacity. Yes. And I'm just going to be recording locally. Here we go. Just your okay. track, if possible. That's all I can do because yours is the one that's breaking up on my end. Yeah. Cool. I'll sync it in post. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You'll make us look fabulous in post, too. Oh, totally. Yeah. No, I'm going to airbrush every frame. Okay. Get like this little filter. Uh, Thing that I do with my hand. Magic Great. Wanda. Yeah. Get some e makeup on me. Who's your um who's your favorite podcaster other than yourself? Corinna. And Corinna. <laughs> you, it's you, Benjamin. Oh, yeah, come on, get off the get off the ranch. Um, I don't so I don't Consume. regularly listen to podcasts. I listen to podcasts that are on particular topics that people recommend but i i skip around too much i don't i don't have any loyalty it's usually topic based for okay. me because you work with you do a lot of art and animation that's incredibly time consuming and something that would be amenable to you know ingesting audio content while you're doing that or do you actually do you... animation i cannot listen to people talk while I'm doing animation. Really? Because I usually animate to music and I'm just okay. focused on that the whole time. And I don't know, animation is like a time-based medium. I can listen to music without words, but I frequently don't because I have music playing in my own head all the time, which is plenty. Like often I forget and then it's like, oh yeah, like if something really heinous gets stuck in there, I might... <laughs> You know, have external audio and a cleansing attempt. But huh. I was doing, I was signing comic books. So, like, just doing the same thing over and over again, that's amenable. And I actually was listening to you and uh, Alistair Gunn. Mm. And also Which, Joe Burgo. I listened to the whole okay. Alistair Gunn one. And then I, I'm halfway through the you and Alistair and Joe in conversation. Yeah. What do you think about that? I was just watching, I was rewatching the Secret Life of Angus Fox one, and I, I was, it was, I, I wanted to tweet about it, but it was, I just felt so proud of the piece of work because there's such an important story um, that he's going to tell, but we are just completely just conversating. It was just like this whole, the way that we were positioning each other as like human beings first before we get on to the topic was just kind of anti anti-media in this kind of uh, uh what, what's the word 
uh, you know, what they call artists like who, not troublemakers, but like and not dissident. There's a word that starts with a D. That's uh, douche nozzles. Yeah, something douche nozzly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying. I, I, you know, I, I was so I didn't tweet about it because I don't really know what I was trying to say. But there was just something about the uh, just rethinking through the art of conversation as a dissident tool to disrupt um, kind of people's assumptions about what media should be and how information should be uh, communicated and transmitted and just kind of there's there's an art to that people need a lot of time for that to work yeah Uh, and time time is kind of a, a gate uh it's a kind of a gatekeeping mechanism too, because if people don't have time to spend on that style of talking, then they'll tune out and then you don't have to worry about a lot of the uh, negative elements of the internet because they just get bored. Yeah. So I did like TV news for the first time in decades, I think. And I had forgotten how concise you have to be. You're given like a minute And you have to, you really have to think of sound bites in advance, which I hadn't thought of. I ended up doing okay. And they actually gave me two minutes. Ooh. Not all for me, but the segment was two minutes. I was really worried about it afterwards. And then I saw it. I was like, yeah, that's all right. But it's so different than what we do. How did you end up doing that? Why? Uh, What was the topic? When my comic got canceled, uh, Newsmax, conservative a television channel uh, invited me on. I was really hoping to do media. I want to do more media. It's like, please, world, listen to me. I'm desperate for media, please. Desperate (laughs) for attention. I hate that feeling of desperation for attention. It's really infantile. But the current project that I'm doing will only work if there's media attention. Mm -hmm. And it was Corinna's idea, by the way. Uh, it was an excellent idea. So people are attributing genius to me that was at least partially Corinna's. Um, but yeah, I was very eager to talk about being canceled by Indiegogo. I just I want people to know what these platforms are doing because we're just mm-hmm. sort of stumbling along while these trust and safety <laughs> teams are silencing people. And really controlling culture in a way that nobody wants, I don't think. Well, you know what? There was this thing, I think it's still ongoing, called Comics Gate, which is uh, more about the gatekeeping of the mainstream comics press. And they're in cahoots with the mainstream comics uh, journalism. canceling people um kind of suppressing different artists and then enshrining shit basically and um that was ongoing and a lot of those artists just went um peer to peer for their funding they they just completely skipped over the gatekeepers and did you know what's it called crowdsourcing or fundraising crowdfunding right that's crowdfunding. the whole thing yeah. so actually i was i was looking at some of those And I was like, okay, what platforms are independent comics creators using? Probably not Kickstarter, because I know Kickstarter has biases already. But Mm -hmm. a lot of them were using Indiegogo. And so I was like, okay, I'll use Indiegogo. And Indiegogo approved it. 
and ran it like you know you submit your project and they approved it and then it ran the campaign ran its entire length and ended at 150 percent of its goal okay and then after it ended indiegogo canceled me two days after the campaign ended they sent me an email that said trust and safety has determined your project does not comply with Indiegogo's terms of use and they instantly refunded everyone and they gave me no explanation and no appeal and no way to respond. But Hmm. the thing is they had approved this campaign. Like if they had a problem with it, they should have not approved it. Was it because it got too big or? It didn't really get very big. I have no, I'll never know. I'll never know what happened. Right. Like I can never know the reason that they did it. It could be, because it just smelled turfy to them. Because uh, there's somebody, there's a conversation Smells on Facebook like turf right spirit. Now. Yeah, it's like somebody said like, oh, well, given, you know, given that you made these statements about sex elsewhere, uh, it's pretty obvious, you know, where this would be heading. And I was like, look, you tell, you know, tell me what in my pages violated their terms of use. It certainly should not be like, oh, well, we don't like the way she thinks. And this could go in a direction that we don't like, but that's probably what it was. No, it's Hmm. probably like, you know, oh, look, she's a troublemaker. Let's just nip this in the bud. Except they didn't nip it in the bud. They waited until the money was all raised and then they sent it all back and they denied me access to the records Hmm. of who the supporters were. Okay. So you have, have you been contacted by any supporters by uh, who've shared with you what Indiegogo had told them about the refund process or why they were refunding? They were not told anything more than me. People were contacting me saying, what happened? Hmm. And they, they would, you know, they're like, we got this message from Indiegogo. We got a refund. What happened? And I'm like, hmm. I don't know. And, and well, the emails from Indiegogo were from a no reply account. Yeah. Okay. And have you done the uh, thing where you get on Twitter and bang bang a pot in a pan? Yeah, to get I've been Indiegogo to say something back. Yeah, there was lots of. I mean, that's all I've been doing is banging and pots and pans online. Any response? No. From that, okay. No, right. others are also banging pots and pans, but not enough. I mean, I don't know what the critical yeah. masses of that behavior. Yeah. Jordan Peterson tweeted about it a couple of days ago. Okay. No yeah, has uh, J.K. Rowling um, no. come to your aid? Okay. She doesn't Maybe. know I exist. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> I'm doing everything. But I feel like such a such a child. It's like, hey, mm. hey, hey. And this is, it's humiliating to be yeah, 50, 40 years old and, and doing this. Yeah. Well, what are the statements on sex that are so troublesome and, and dire that you need to be unpersoned in this way? Oh, well, on Facebook, most recently, I posted biological sex is real, immutable, binary, and asymmetrical. Huh. And that outraged the Facebook people. Um, The people of Facebook or on Facebook? The people on Facebook. I did not get banned from Facebook this time. I have been banned from Facebook for similar behavior. Yeah. But uh, this statement was proof to many people that I'm a bigot. I keep making statements like this. You do, (laughs) for some reason. Like, why why do you need to say this? 
I needed to say that particular okay. one because I wanted to discuss the asymmetry. Of that's sex. what I was. That's what I'm interested in. That's yeah. what I want to talk to you about. Okay. Well, we had uh, Corinna and I had interviewed that morning Joe, uh, also known as Case Files, a woman with complete androgen and sensitivity syndrome. Mm. And, uh, you know, her condition is used as a political football and it also flummoxes everyone, including certain very rigid radical feminists who struggle with the idea. You said that, rigid, not fidget, just to want to make that clear. Yes, they rigid, don't like, not frigid. They don't yes. like frigid, but they might accept rigid. Rigid, yes. Uh, ideologically rigid. You know, complete androgen and sensitivity syndrome really is hard for people to wrap their head around. And it's incredibly rare, but its existence means that you can no longer say that a Y chromosome absolutely makes someone a man. Granted, it's incredibly rare. Mm -hmm. And it's the only exception that I'm aware of. But still, it's an exception. So a lot of hmm. uh, gender critical radical, not a lot, a, a minority of gender critical radical feminists, when they're confronted with CAIS, they don't like it. And they'll say things like, no, that's a man. Y chromosome is a man. And it's like, no, there's this one case where, no, <laughs> it's not a man. Uh, anyway, we had a great talk with Joe and she was talking about the importance of sex and sex-based rights and uh and these just differences between men and women the fact that women can get pregnant and men can't and that men can impregnate them and that's just a huge difference just there like that alone would be sufficient asymmetry so that you'd want some sex-based protections in law and mm -hmm. then there are other issues like men's vastly superior upper body strength to women's and men's propensity to violence, which may or may not be exclusively because of testosterone, but is related to that. And it's just asymmetrical, which is why uh, the issue is men and women's sports and not women and men's sports, and why the issue is men and women's prisons and not women and men's prisons. This and mm -hmm. it's like, let's just remember that it's asymmetrical. That's the reason we care about this. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the, um, some people read um, the history of feminism as the uh, deconstruction of asymmetrical roles and attitudes towards the sexes uh, in, in culture, like the... The, in order to fix negative stereotypes, stereotypes themselves have been throw, thrown out the window. In order to fix historical and perceived injustices and asymmetries of treatment, the differences of the sexes, um, at least in academic fem feminism, were deconstructed and and, and a push in popular culture to equalize the sexes um, preceded the transgender movement. What do you think that there's any grounding to say that feminism preceded transgenderism ideologically in certain strains of feminism? Of course, feminism is not a monolith, but certain. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say in the popular 
discourse, yes, for sure. Uh, it was. It has been hard for me in the last few years to acknowledge these to acknowledge the asymmetry of the sexes, right? Like I really liked the idea when I was younger that we were simply equal, equal, but different, right? Separate, but equal. <laughs> um, and that, you know, it's not, it's not fun when you're a rebellious independent woman to acknowledge that you have a strength disadvantage that just makes a big difference. And also, when I was young, I hated when things were segregated by sex. I hated it. Um, you know, like, I should be able to play with the boys. I should be able to do the boy. I was interested in a lot of the boy stuff. And I hated being, you know, made to socialize with the girls. Like I hated playing dolls. It's like, oh, the girls want to play house and they want to be mommy. And I'm like, I hate that. I'd be on an adventure with the boys. Uh, at the same time, there were kinds of sex segregation that didn't bother me at all, like different changing rooms at the swimming pool and different bathrooms. Although I was really surprised the first time I ever discovered that there were boys and girls bathrooms. I was in kindergarten. No, I think I was in first grade. The kindergarten had a shared bathroom, but in first grade, we were having like our first grade day. And then the teacher said, who would like to use the restroom? And a bunch of kids raised their hands. And I was like, okay, sure. And I thought a restroom was like a room with pillows and shit. No one ever <laughs> called it a restroom. I didn't know that word. <laughs> but it's like, it sounds like fun resting in a room. And then the teacher was like, okay, you all can go. And I did. And I followed a boy. Okay. And then, you know, it was like, first of all, it was, imagine my disappointment when it turned out it's to be a, a bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> and then also the boy was like, why are you following me? You're in the wrong place. So that was how I learned that there were separate toilets yeah. for boys and girls. But I didn't really have a problem with it. I was just confused. But and then I got used to it and I, I took it for granted, right? I just took it for granted. And then with the last five years of, or seven years, I guess, of the rise of transgender ideology, I had to confront things that I took for granted and ask myself why things were this way. And it was, it was humbling to acknowledge that actually I want, I want special rights for women in the law. It's like, how can I justify that? If I believe in equality, how can I justify that I want special treatment for women and the answer is like yeah well we're not equal in all ways we're just not there's this asymmetry we're equal in many ways in most ways it's like i want to highlight that but then these few ways that we are not equal uh i don't want to throw that away for a ideological mistake 
Mm, okay. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't conform with reality, you know, but it's hard. Yeah. It's just hard because there, you know, I grew up with so much sexism and so much idealism and I didn't like being treated. I could tell all these ways I was being treated lesser and had fewer freedoms and it wasn't fair. Uh, so I was just against all of that, but it's like, yeah, I guess I have seen the limits of this, you know, simplistic approach to sexism. There are differences. And then the problem is, you know, we don't want to amplify these differences too much. We just want to accept that there are some differences and we have to be sensible about those differences. As an artist and as a storyteller specifically, you are in a unique position um, in your work to deal with stereotypes via archetype, via story, mm -hmm. via the dynamics of what makes a good story, what makes a believable story, and how that story can be internalized in a culture and shape how people behave, ultimately shape how people envision, let's say, the differences and the asymmetries between male and female, masculine and feminine. You can, you can refine and mature these ideologies or counter these ideologies or run these ideologies through a narrative process to show people in, in the way that only a story can, the false, the falseness or the goodness of different conceptions of male and female. And actually a lot of your work, some of the, your, the work that I've seen of you that is just mind blowingly awesome, um, does have like gender things going on in it. You did the, the one, what's the Indian Rama, Sita Rama sings the blues, the Ramayana. Sita, yeah. Ramayana. And then there's this little brilliant freaking music video you did um, with the soldiers, like killing each other throughout time. I can't oh, remember yeah, what the song is. This land is mine. <laughs> this land is mine. It's so good. I'll link it in the description, but that's very much about the mask. That's very like, this is masculinity, you know? Well, it's uh, funny with this land is mine. So, I finished that in 2012, and it's the most popular thing I've ever made. <laughs> millions and millions of views of that thing. And a female, an Indian female journalist, interpreted it as a comment on masculinity and said, aha, see, you have no women, you know, you're just showing these violent men and not women, and, you know, don't you think, I don't know, it's like, don't you think women wouldn't do this or something? And I responded like, nah, I think women would do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if there were no, if there were no men, uh, women would, that we would not live in this like peace and love hmm. society because women are still human uh, and humans are violent. It's just hmm. uh, women would find ways to fill those roles themselves <laughs> and not and not with men but also i i think that there is so much so many women have supported wars that it's not like all women are anti-war well uh, even evolutionarily biology speaking women selected men even if the men were raping and pillaging of uh, for a certain percentage of the population that occurred men uh, women were still instinctively selecting men and, or maybe even outsourcing violence to men in a way because we're animals and you know what turns people on is strength yeah. so i have this weird hypothesis oh cool that so you know that um supposedly early early humans prehistoric humans were like taller and healthier and stronger 
than hmm. they became, right? You know, humans got like shorter and smaller and weaker. And that's attributed to agriculture for the most part. The thought is that they had better diets and lifestyles prior to agriculture. I wonder if with the with the advent of civilization, which agriculture is a part of that, if there was simply so much um, capturing of women, like whenever there were wars or raids that, that people would, men would kill the men and mate with the women. Yeah. Uh, but they would not mate with a rebellious woman, right? Like if a woman fought enough, she would die. So I wonder if there was selection going on for weaker women, which then, you know, smaller, weaker women, which then would make a smaller, weaker species. Huh. That's my wondering. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a very plausible bottleneck. Um, but yeah, you know, in terms of selecting, I don't know. I mean, we were we were dimorphic before, I guess. We're very not that dimorphic species, right. though. If you look at like right. uh, gorillas, for instance, like the or cows, you know, there's other animals have greater gaps oh, than we cows. Do. Cows are not the cows, cows and bulls. Are, well, cows and bulls. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of cows from a distance. I wouldn't know. There's a lot of cows with horns. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's true. Okay, yeah. Bad example. I didn't you can just tell which dangly bit goes to which... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, horses side. Horses aren't super dimorphic, right? Like, you gotta, you know, look under, underneath, see what's yeah. going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, supposedly we are less dimorphic than other apes. But we're still dimorphic. And yeah, I don't know if we're more or less dimorphic than we were you know, in the prehistoric huntery gathery days. But I don't know. I mean, it would make sense like if you're already if if you're already weaker and more vulnerable because you can get pregnant, it would make sense that you would want to select a strong mate that will protect you. But protect you. it it it's probably not the only way to look at it. Yeah. Like I think there are valid alternative ways to look at that situation which don't necessarily come to mind so there, there's the idea of asymmetry between men and women hominoids and my contention has been that gender is the social um kind of contract between men and women that regulates the behavioral differences in a positive or pro-social or antisocial way and that cultures will always invent gender and that it's if you do kind of believe that there are these archetypes or something in our brain has patterns to it that are like stories we have male male masculine ideas and feminine uh, female ideas just kind of baked into us um, and that those are expressed through culture, um, through even just like Madonna, if you look at Christianity, like there's something about Madonna, not the puffy, um, puffy Madonna of modern day, uh, Botox Madonna, but yes. you know, the, the statues and the saints, um, that are depicted in, in the Christian narrative when they turn their ideas into images, there's something about motherhood and femininity that is being communicated in that as a, as a gendered 
role as it as an extension of some sort of truth or some sort of very deep reality or even just sanctity of you know mother father son etc so art is always being used to promulgate that i mean it's interesting that you say motherhood specifically because motherhood is a real thing that i have never done and am never going to do you checked out i checked out (laughs) i had a a hysterectomy oh wow uh, a couple years ago yeah i had like massive debilitating fibroids and it was a real mess and uh yeah, so I'm sorry. What was fibroids? Since we're venturing, fibroids into- are non-cancerous tumors that oh, wow, okay. grow in your uterus. Or if you're extra lucky, like me, you get one the size of an orange in your cervix. Oh, jeez. So, okay. Yeah, it explained a lot. A lot of pain that I had lived with for a long time. <laughs> oh, you got like <laughs> got- that that Kool Aid guy crashing through your womb. It was not good. And then I was, you know starting menopause so this tissue was dying like it didn't have enough estrogen to sustain it so it was going necrotic i was very ill wow Uh, but i never wanted children anyway i never wanted to be a mother and yet i am a woman so this is a uh this is gender non-conforming right like a woman that doesn't want children that uh Hmm. has has made me a a misfit for a long time there's probably you know about 10 percent of women who are what you call child free like they don't want kids mm-hmm. um so it's a minority but it's not super rare uh at any rate motherhood is an actual thing that you actually do and um gen the the gender stuff doesn't really care if you do that or not I mean, a mother, a mother is an archetype beyond just woman, a mother, you know, these Madonnas that you're talking about, uh, they're, they're more, you know, it's more specific than just woman. It's actually mother. Only women are mothers, but not all women are mothers. Yeah. So there is there, is there a, I guess cognitive dissonance is not the right term, but a realizing or choosing not to be a mother puts you at odds somehow or there is a tension between societal expectations or even internal expectations and this idea of motherhood like so there's this tension or maybe a struggle yeah how did how did that play out and how does how did that um impact you or form you or cause you to develop uh, oh yeah i mean it it made me very angry as a young person. The pressure on young women is just huge. Uh, And it's um, like people were offended by my Hmm. not wanting to have children. And they expected me to be motherly. Like, you know, I have many reasons for not wanting to have children, but one of them is it's like a, it's like a primal orientation. Like you're supposed to, find children attractive i don't mean sexually attractive but um, adorable adorable right you want to squeeze you yeah i know the expectation is especially for women less so for men but for all humans you're we're supposed to look at babies and go like oh i want to hold it oh i want one of my own oh it's so cute and 
I do that with cats and kittens, but human babies repelled me. Really? And yeah, especially when I was much younger. Um, Like they, I just wanted to get away from them. They were like scary little aliens um, or larvae or something. And I wanted to be away from them. And, you know, it's like, yeah, that's weird. Like, what what the hell was wrong with me? That ain't natural. That is not conducive to the survival of the species. So what is going on? So I had that reaction and like I knew it was socially unacceptable. I knew that I was not supposed to be like that and that it was embarrassing for my parents if I expressed that and that I should not be that way. And I felt very alien. And I, hmm. yeah, it was just being super outsider. Since then, I've come up with a sort of Jungian friendly explanation okay. for that. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, so. Or um, maybe, how did you stumble upon this? Was there an insight or a dream? Or no, a, just lots of thinking. A bad batch of MDMA or something? <laughs> lots of thinking over the years. Yeah. Um, okay, so part of it was reading. I think the book is called The Extended Phenotype by Richard Dawkins. You know that book? So the idea is that, um, I mean, organisms evolve, they co-evolve. And he used the example of cuckoo birds. So, you know, the cuckoo, like uh, the uh, cuckoo will lay its eggs in another bird's nest. And then the cuckoo chicks will be irresistible to the other birds. Like cuckoos don't raise their own young. They're parasites. And the other birds will... Um, you know, whatever, the, the other chicks will get kicked out of the nest. And these birds will be raising these cuckoos and just devote everything to these parasitic cuckoos because there's something about cuckoos that's just freaking irresistible huh. to other birds that makes them more irresistible than their own chicks. And I thought, huh, that's a little bit like cats. <laughs> cats <laughs> and me, right? Like, cats are so cute. And I will have worship them and devote my life to them uh so uh that was you were you were stamped as a cat lady from the beginning i was what you were stamped as a cat lady from the beginning well no it's not really about cat lady but i was thinking about how what cuckoos do is they they hijack the what I call the psycho-reproductive system of other birds, right? And cats have hijacked my psycho-reproductive system and that of many other people, including people that also love babies. Uh, But cats are working it, right? Like there's this system that's already in place and the cats use that in a way. It's fine with me. I'm happy to do that. So I have all these ideas about culture uh, and I have... You know, I am happy, sometimes ecstatic, to devote my life to art. Art creation is frequently associated with reproductive energies, right? Like, uh, was it Freud that talked about sublimation? The idea that when you create something, you are sublimating your sexual energies into art. So there's, it's not definitive, but... You know, let's just follow this, that there's some sort of common energy source in both procreation and artistic artistic creation. So, and I, 
I sometimes personalize my artistic drive as my muse, that I have a muse. There's, there's some thing that wants me to create, right? There's like ideas in the ether and I'm capable of manifesting them and I am useful to them. I call it culture also, like, cause I think of culture as a living organism uh, or it's like a big culture is alive and it lives in us. I don't think of human beings as like independent things and culture is like something we make up. I think that uh, it's, it's a symbiotic where we live in symbiosis with culture, which we do not yeah. understand. And we don't, we don't study like it's a living thing, but to me it is a living yeah. thing. Yeah. So here I am. Uh, sort of <laughs> chosen by the muse or whatever, you know, like, like available, wanting to make myself available to art, having that be a really important part of my life. Now, what would happen if I had a kid? That energy would be going to kid, right? Like I would not, culture would have a lot less of me if I were into babies and having them. So, like, what if culture hijacked my psycho-reproductive system the mm. same way cats do? Like, it mm. needs that energy. I, it has to be available for it for me to create stuff. And so uh, it would behoove it to make me repelled by children. Or another way to look at it would be um, I have a thing going on with culture and on some level, much deeper than conscious, I recognize that babies are a threat to that, a huge threat to that. Because my response to babies when I was younger was actually disgust. And, and that's a really strong reaction. And actually, a therapist like, asked me about that. He's like, well, disgust? Why would that be disgust? And I thought about it. And I was like, well, you know, that would that because disgust is like it's going to be toxic it's going to be poisonous it's gonna it's gonna make you sick and indeed it would ruin everything <laughs> if uh if i had been attracted to them so maybe just on some level uh it was it was cultures or like my little art you know inner artist that is more primal than the rest of me but uh just had to had to not go anywhere near those things you can not be a mother but you can't not be a woman correct so you have to renegotiate um in your own head or through your own process what it means to be a woman hello corinna hello corinna, hello. corinna has to do that too what it means to be a woman or not, or not being a woman. <laughs> what it means to not be a woman. Yeah, you have to do that too, Ben. Benjamin. Or do you go by Ben or Benjamin? Uh, Benjamin, um, okay. unless we're at Starbucks and we're trying to communicate to the barista okay. and we don't want to deal with all those letters. You have to do that too, Benjamin. What do I have to do? You have to decide what it means to be a woman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if that's my responsibility to do that, but I, I know that I, um, I get along with women and that women, um, uh, hold a special place in my heart or a special, uh, priority in my, uh, in my interaction with the world, in my interaction with culture. 
uh, is mitigated through women. It's always been mitigated through women. You were, you were talking about like that sublimation process. It's like, it's very evident to me that the field of um, being that I'm in when I'm engaged in a creative project is the same field of creativity I'm in when I'm involved in a romantic uh, phase of relationship. Mm. I'm in another place, another world, and the sensitivities that I have are of another type, another sort. And then the uh, and then there's a bunch of negative things, uh, negative states that go with with romance and creativity too. But that is more uh, romantic or more emotional than than necessarily like erotic, erotic. Um, but that's always usually mitigated by a female or some sort of interaction with the feminine. And I think that there's a there's even um, probably. A can of worms to say, but I think that a man that's writing a very believable female character is, in a sense, some form of trans, kind of entering into a, like kind of a trans state, a, a, a psychological state. And I know we can argue whether or not a believable female character is actually a woman or man. Can a man ever attain insight, internal insight into what it is to be a woman? I think that literature kind of says maybe well okay so i think i think archetypes are a great metaphor a great lens to look at this and you can just go like we all have archetypes inside of us we have you know these masculine and feminine characters or principles inside of us and so no like you don't have to be trans to to empathize with or channel or tune into that aspect of your personality to say that you have to be trans to do that is, is like assuming that, you know, somehow, you know, by being a man or a woman, you exist in this really narrow realm, whereas all people are capable of empathy and we all contain, you know, multitudes, characters, gods, goddesses, archetypes that's part of everybody well in in one respect i've seen or i've thought that a part of the trans phenomena um in this day and age is uh you see a lot of young men or middle-aged men um men of different um, stages in development um working through their anima somehow like there's mm -hmm. there's this they're engaged with their anima and they're materializing it they're trying to concretize the, the transcendent feminine. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to really own it and grasp it. And I think it's kind of a maladaptive way to, to go about engaging with that aspect. But Corinna, did that offend you? No. What okay. was it? Was it calculated was too? No, no. <laughs> well, my, my thought was that, well, Try not to offend other people now. Um, when you're talking about this sort of maladaptive connection with femininity, I don't think that I see it from a lot of people, a lot of men who identify as trans women. I don't think it's there. What's not it there? It is in some. It is in some cases. Any, any, anything that would be uh, something that we would connect to femininity, anything that we would understand as being part of the feminine archetype. 
uh, I'm seeing that less and less today. What are you seeing? Well, a, a couple of things. One is there does seem to be a form of sexual orientation, whatever we want to call it, where acquiring the trappings of the opposite sex is one of the drivers and that possibly on a more complicated basis that um, making women acknowledge the that individual as as something that they're not some sort of power dynamic that seems to be in, involved in transition uh, seems to be another aspect of that sexual orientation whatever we want hmm. we want to call it and that some of these many of these individuals who i'm seeing who've transitioned in the last five years or so although they may dress more from the the women's rack than the men's rack they don't seem like they'd be people who'd be out of place at all if they were dressed if everybody was dressed in sackcloths i don't think that they would have anything that would distinguish them from uh, just a ordinary um, mostly in the typically straight man. What do you think is facilitating this um, kind of this group that you're talking about, or why is it ascendant in our culture? In my opinion, it is because the barriers to achieve that form of expression have been eroded. If you go back 20 years, Anybody who wanted to transition would have to successfully complete something called the, the real life test, which is that they were expected to start or undergo transition without even the aid of having hormone replacement therapy or any surgeries. And that the purpose of that was to see how well that individual could integrate into society as a member of their target sex. So in other words, they're the opposite sex. But that that sort of, they call that gatekeeping, but that sort of process of trying to see how well a person could integrate or assimilate as the opposite sex, that doesn't even exist anymore. And it's been replaced by, and so it's the expectations no longer on the individual to try to assimilate. The expectation is now on society, um, largely women, as we see this, uh, particularly in areas like women's sports, that that the obligation now is no longer on the individual, it's on the members of society in order to um, pretend that that person is their target sex. Every, everything has shifted, we hit a we hit a tipping point and everything has turned around. Yeah, it just seems like expression of male entitlement for the most part. It's very masculine. What is male entitlement? I hear that term. What do you mean by that? Uh, it's the idea, it's the assertion of, is the assertion of male dominance. So here we are back to b the asymmetry of the sexes. Um, it makes some evolutionary sense for women to be submissive. It makes some sense if you're in a class of people that is 50% less upper body strength and is less violent than the other class, 
to submit <laughs> to that class. And uh, because women have achieved some legal rights and more equality in Western societies than we used to have, uh, they are performing less submission than maybe they had to in the past. And so uh, there might be a, a primal animal compulsion for men to dominate women, to, you know, establish their supremacy over them to violate their boundaries, to force them into lying right in front of them, uh, you know, to force them to say what they want you to say, to perform some sort of obeisance. I think that's what I mean by male entitlement. But there's also one fascinating thing is that you see a lot of the elite women-centered institutions all lining up behind the trans phenomena and yeah um, and and it's vol women voluntarily doing this yes. like they're, they're the trans have... trans maidens instead of the handmaidens in a yes. way. so what's that phenomena? I have many thoughts about this like I said it makes it is a rational strategy to submit right like you have this class that's stronger than the other class and some of them this is why I say that we're never going to smash patriarchy uh, that we will struggle with patriarchy, we will struggle against patriarchy, but you cannot smash patriarchy because let's say, I don't know, 50% of the women are like, we're going to smash patriarchy. Well, they've just opened up an enormous niche for women to use a different strategy to get ahead, right? If 50% if of women have just removed themselves from, from this pool of uh of cooperation then women that decide that they will cooperate or collude that each one of them is going to get twice as much reward as they used to get right so it's like very it's it's a fine strategy to collude hmm. and handmaiden and things like that especially when there are other women that are not doing like every woman who who fights this is like increasing the resources that you're going to get when you uh, suck up, well, yeah, <laughs> when you and, suck um, up to your oppressor. If you look at uh, the dynamics around the J.K. Rowling pushback and the women that go um, that fall on the side of J.K. Rowling is a transphobe, they get to grandstand. They get the attention of the men mm. who are following oh, yeah. them. But then, but then you also have men who aren't going to transition, who are just kind of the male feminist thing, which is another, like, the sneaky fucker strategy. It's like, well, I'll just, I'll side with the strong women, because then they'll tell me what to do, and I'll just, you know, I'll get some, and you know, big payoff, like, all I have to do is be a dick online, which is kind of easy that I'm taking yeah, care that, of. The sneaky fucker, that is a, a cuttlefish it's a technical term. Yeah, it's it's what <laughs> how, how the the smaller male cuttlefish managed to to mate. It is a technical term. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's rational, like because a lot of us angry feminist types are we despair over yeah. the handmaidens, but it makes sense, you know. They're behaving rationally. 
Uh, I've done that when I was younger. I would look for niches, when, you know, like in high school or college. It's like, okay, you know, how do I compete with other women for male attention? And uh, what you know. what what's so delicious about male attention? Nina well, I was heterosexual. I was highly heterosexual. Highly heterosexual. I was an extremely horny heterosexual young woman. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yes. Extremely. Um, oh, wow. And uh, one of the gifts of menopause is that has toned way down. <laughs> and I can see things with a clarity that I could not see before. Let's just say yeah. a different lens. But well, yeah, I was I was so desperate. I mean, a lot of these descriptions of the male sex drive, it's like, you don't know what it's like to just think about sex all the time and just want to fuck all the time. It's like, yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> Have you, by the way, just what you're expressing, this is kind of a personal question, so forgive me, but what you're expressing is, uh, seems to lead me to guess or to ask if you kind of had like a higher testosterone than most women and which, uh, kind of leads you into being an artist and a horny artist at that and not wanting to be a mother too. If there's like an endocrinology level that's yeah, fueling we, you we never we will never Baked. know yeah um yeah. i will say this that i uh i did not want to be a woman i wanted to be a gay man and hmm. i like i did not want to grow breasts i did not want any of that stuff and my body had totally other ideas and for years it was the weirdest thing to look at my reflection in the mirror. It's like, what is this? Like, cause I was like curvy and stuff. And I just didn't identify that way. And, but there I was. And then also the thing with like me deeply and profoundly not wanting to have children, but knowing that, you know, I was probably plenty fertile. Everyone in my family is super fertile. Like I myself was conceived through a diaphragm. Oh, and, wow, okay. uh, you know, no one in my family has ever had the least bit of trouble conceiving. And uh, so I was kind of, a, 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 would I say, at war, at war with my body? It's like, you know, birth control and contraception, you know, mechanical and hormonal and all these things. Um, I suffered a lot, uh, but I did not want to get pregnant. How did you make peace or find harmony in uh, your intention, your will and your body. Interestingly, when I, I tried very hard to get a tubal ligation, but they wouldn't give it to me because, you know, educated white woman, doctors don't want to give educated white women tubal ligations, but I was poor enough. It turned out that I could get the state to pay for one. And when I was 33, I had a tubal ligation and it had amazing psychological benefits that I was not expecting. Like, like my repulsion from children toned way down. Like I was just relaxed uh, because I was not in danger of getting pregnant anymore. All that stuff just simmered way down. Huh. Um, that, you know, is probably not a great thing to say when, you know, I am highly opposed to unnecessary medical treatments and especially in children, uh, in underage people, but granted, you know, 
I didn't even I didn't even start asking for one until I was 25, right? Like only by the time I was 25 and that hadn't changed, it was like, okay, now I'm going to pursue this. They should have given it to me when I was 25. Um, they should have done it when you're 16, you know, started yeah, doing see, testosterone. They, they shouldn't have done that. <laughs> and I'm glad, oh, yeah. I'm glad this shit wasn't around when I was a teenager because I would have totally gone for it. I was also you, extremely you, you depressed. And Buck could be just like this right now if you it could be sisters <laughs> transistors transistors uh, so how, how did you negotiate womanhood in your art from that point of view from the those really strong feelings of desire for males and yet oh we have an answer i lived in the castro san francisco so you the know castro? when i was the Castro, the gay neighborhood in San Francisco. So from 1991 onward, for five years, I lived there. And when I was eight years old, I refused to wear skirts or dresses or anything a boy wouldn't wear. And I kept with that. And I lived in the Castro and boys wore that stuff. And I found drag queens quite liberating. And I was huh. like, oh, yeah, I can do drag too, can't I? So I spent a year doing drag. I got a wig and makeup and like really went like over the top. Wait, woman face or man I face? I put on woman face, yeah. Really? But I didn't I didn't think of it as woman face. I thought of it as oh, yeah. like makeup as this like feminine stereotype that I had contempt for, right? Yeah. But but because I was male identified, the drag queens gave it a kind of legitimacy that I didn't give it. And anyway, I figured I would try it. And uh, I had a year of adventure. And when that year ended, I stopped doing the, the full drag stuff, but I was left with just more comfort with my body and more, more comfort with a lot more, like a much a, a broader range of gender expression, shall we say, that then I was able to be comfortable in a dress or in women's clothes and doing that. It was a mysterious, a mysterious year. Yeah, that's like a reprogramming um, kind of adventure where you are pretending. Well, I'm sorry, you're not pretending to be a man, but you you are you're expressing masculinity, and then pretending to express, or and then expressing femininity in a very closed, almost uh, almost. What, I wasn't ritualistic a drag performer. Form. I was not a drag performer, right? When I say oh. I did drag, what okay. I meant was for me wearing makeup because i never wore makeup before for me putting on the wig putting on the makeup putting on the women's clothes it was a performance but i was not doing it on a stage i was going out in the world doing I, like, what like walking around like, walking around and going to things and you know socializing but okay. people wouldn't recognize me that i knew and uh did you change your voice and your bearing and your gait and kind of steady or hyper feminize your well your my gait was different because i i wore high heel shoes those change your gait yeah yeah uh the clothes change it you know and also i mean i remember the first time i saw myself the first time i did it and saw myself in the mirror i was like like it's it's like a, i was a puppet it was like my body was a puppet and i got to control this puppet that wasn't me. It didn't look like me. But yeah, somehow after doing it for a long time, I I inhabited more femininity afterwards. Huh. Everyone should do that. Every 
everyone should do drag for a year. <laughs> <laughs> what caused you to stop calling it drag what you were doing? I, well, I really wasn't doing it. I mean, uh, drag was with the wig and the makeup and stuff like, you know, where I looked so different, people wouldn't recognize me. Why did you, you, know? did you just get tired of that? Or was there? Yeah, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And uh, I didn't do it all the time. I did it sometimes. But there was just sort of a kind of integration that happened. And then I would just be, you know, like I had really short hair. I buzzed my head. Not shaved, but, you know, went over it with a wall clipper. So it was like that long. Um, I don't know. I mean, I just looked around me and it's like sometimes I would put on eyeliner, like just eyeliner. Not the whole drag face, but just a little bit. I've completely stopped doing that, by the way. But there was like a little period. And then, you know, I would I would be comfortable in dresses after that. Like if I wore a dress, it was just clothes. And somehow before it felt it felt weird, but it didn't feel weird afterwards can't really explain it but yes young people spend a year in drag that might resolve a lot of stuff for you <laughs> and art and art like work, working through having a conversation with gender through art yeah I didn't you really said something about smashing the patriarchy but you you're erotically in love with men you want to inhabit the male space and yet were you were you also at the same time like shaking the fist at the father kind of thing like with the patriarchy thing were you ever in that camp of radical feminism of smash the patriarchy yeah or you just wanted I to mean, smash men i didn't want I wanted to bang men yeah <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to smash them uh, you know, I wrote an article about this time in my life. It's called My Sex Positive Memoirs. It's on 4w.pub. There was a lot going on. I don't think I could explain what was going on with me. There was like a lot of pain and heartache and longing and anger there was a lot of stuff going on but i certainly was part of the sex positive movement in san francisco i certainly tried all the things and uh i very recently read the book the case against the sexual revolution by louise perry and it's like yeah she makes a good case <laughs> against the sexual revolution. <laughs> I, I tried a lot of things, but I don't think I benefited from it. While I'm babbling, I know I'm dominating this conversation here, this conversation. Uh, I do, I do think that for the majority of people, sex and romance and all that stuff really is for making babies. And that, you know, a lot of patterns that happened over and over again in my relationships where things didn't work out, I can look at them now and go like, well, that probably wouldn't have happened if we had a baby. Hmm. Like, like, there's only so much time um, that initial hormone blushes will bond a couple 
that wears off. And what's supposed to happen, and by I'm, I'm using this word supposed to liberally, like I don't actually believe this, but it's a, you know, that's like the intro to having the baby and then both partners are bonded to the baby and then the bonding and the hormonal payoffs have to do with raising the baby and now they're mm. a family unit they're not just a couple they're like a whole thing and the dynamics change uh whereas for me it was just one fairly short-term relationship after another because there was nothing else that we were bonding to as a couple <laughs> they certainly weren't bonding to my art i was bonding to my art but the male partners i had were usually really threatened by that hmm. so uh yeah so that just wasn't happening so i by no means am saying oh people should have babies but i do think that our our mating programming is a really primal deep thing and uh it it resonates with a certain pattern that includes having babies and when you go off of that you're you're on your own. <laughs> you I don't was, have. <laughs> just a couple of weeks ago, I had Ayla, um, who's a, uh, she describes herself as a sex researcher now. She does a lot of research around it, and she's also uh, been able to be very uh, uh, successful uh, with OnlyFans and other internet self-produced yeah. uh, por pornography. So she's kind of a, that person. And then I had her in dialogue Dialogue's kind of a generous term with Megan Murphy, who's a radical yeah. feminist. And the topic was trying to get to the ethics around porn. Like, is porn, should we ban porn? Like, why is it wrong? Is it bad for society? And it was kind of a train wreck of a conversation because they had so such disparate ethical frameworks and uh, styles of communicating those ethical frameworks. But at the end of the conversation, I, you know, we were talking about sex. I tried to introduce the concept of... Without the child, without procreation, like, does, is there any ethic to sex at all? Like, without that anchoring sex, does sex have any meaning, any ethical, moral meaning? Without, if you take that out, and both women, I phrase it in such a way to ask if they wanted to have babies, and they both said no. So they were both outside of the procreative aspect of sex. So their opinions on sex are going to be not tethered in the same way as, as a more traditional or conservative point of view or a point of view that is about um, engineering in society such a, that it refreshes um, the persons in that society and then does so in such a way where the children get a good childhood. Get, they get, they get the energy from the father and the mother and, and those dynamics are, are tuned. So it's just, it's a different conversation when you bring babies into the equation of sex and sex is just means something else when you leave that off the table. And then a lot that has to do with gender also changes too. Um, one of my intuitions is that the relationship that popular culture has promulgated between a woman and her body, um, through, uh, easy access to abortion through, through liberation of woman from 
motherhood and from wifehood uh, has kind of left us it's had some benefits, but also has some costs. There's some costs to society when we disengage from expectations of men and women behaving in a certain way. I think we're struggling with that and gender, this gender phenomena, this gender ideology is kind of a manifestation or outcropping of losing mm -hmm. that anchor. Is this a, a way of getting around to the accusation that Feminism is one of the root causes why we have the gender ideology that we have right now. I brought she that already up did that. Well, I want yeah, to hear Corinna. Already... Corinna, is that, is that, <laughs> does that resonate with you? I'm listening. I have to close the door. Well, if we have an opportunity to blame women, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, the if women have an opportunity to, to dodge blame, they're going to take it too. Oh. So, you know, it's a double-sided coin, that one. I... Uh, I you know, when we look at how this ideology managed to enter institutions, I think that it did so under the cover of a form of feminism. I think the, the big mistake here is the composition error that we think that just because some people who call themselves feminists support a certain viewpoint, that that means that all feminists support that viewpoint. And I think that leads to a lot of misunderstandings in the, the sort of discussions that we have where some people say oh this is all the fault of feminism and there's we haven't even bothered to define what feminism is except that i think for a lot of people feminism is just a, a catchphrase or a catch-all to describe an a liberal ideology that isn't familiar to people who have a, a more conservative outlook. I don't know if either, well, Nina, you'll remember this because I, I think uh, I think we're both senior to, to Benjamin. But back in the 1980s, you look confused, Benjamin. I'm, 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 I'm sure I'm older than you. Corinna looks freaky young, okay? Okay, Corinna maybe we're the freak. same age. I was born in 1975. Oh, you're one year older than me then. Okay, fine. You're my freaking senior. <laughs> All right. Then you, you might remember this if, if we're only a year apart. Uh, back in the, back when George Herbert Walker Bush was president, back when Bill Clinton was president, that was the starting phases of the right-wing um, populist media with Rush Limbaugh. And feminism was a very uh, big punching bag for people like Rush Limbaugh. Yeah, feminazis. Yeah, he had feminazis. On it every day, yeah. Yep, and that conception of feminism, which was, uh, I, I think, a fair description of it, is whatever Rush Limbaugh didn't like that day, is something that has had <laughs> a, a lot of persistence. And so, when when we're twenty years or thirty years later, and we're saying gender ideology, the reason it moved into the institutions is because of feminism. Um, I think the people who are making that claim might not have any better ability to articulate what feminism is than Rush Limbaugh had in the 1980s and 90s. Well, the, another analysis that includes um, some sort of responsibility appended to feminism, especially academic feminism and certain strains of it, 
is that feminism is an outgrowth of liberalism and liberalism has different kind of frames to it too. And one is just perpetual liberation, like liberating people, liberating, liberate. We're always seeking liberation. We're always seeking egalitarianism, which Nina brought up earlier. There's these inherent um, assumptions within liberalism or directions or um, directives in it that include both certain forms of feminism and then certain forms of gender ideology. And so the, the same ideas can you can see operating in both feminism and gender ideology that don't owe to either of them, but are an outgrowth of uh, previous umbrella being liberalism. Benjamin, I think about this a lot. I think about uh, feminism as being destabilizing to a society that we had, a patriarchal society that we had prior to it. And I also clearly think a lot about the asymmetry of sex, so that women are actually weaker than men physically, and that we are vulnerable and that our bodies are, you know, only our bodies can get pregnant. And here I am a woman that never wanted that. And so when I think about this, I go like, well, why do I even fight? I mean, what? Like, wouldn't it just make sense for me to just have had babies just accept it, just accept that, like, okay, weaker than men can get pregnant. There's stability in this. There's protection. Not going to destabilize society. Um, And all I can say is that, like, there's a there's a we have spirits like some of us just chafe (laughs) under oppression and long for freedom. And I can't explain that as a as a rational thing but you know like yeah my upper body strength might be 50 percent less than men but my mind isn't and you know my heart and my passions aren't and it's uh i i care about my own spirit you know like i if i just rolled over to this I would be a shell of a person. And for some reason, I don't want to be a shell of a person. Like there's some spark in me that, that clings to life. And that means that I'm in this position where I'm contrary and fighting and getting my comic book canceled and stuff. But I, I have no better alternative for it. It's like, yeah, I see, I see these downsides, but I, you know, I'm a person, damn it. <laughs> well, we can uh, we can be the exception that proves the rule or defeats the rule or resents the rule. And you can be exceptional. And that I use that term broadly. You can be exceptional and you can resent the order that is and tear it down. Or you can see yourself as bound to it as a critic or as uh, somebody who can see it from the outside, right? You can bring special knowledge to it. You can reflect it by being outside of it, or you can see it in a different point of view. And that artistic freedom is one thing, but the activist freedom is the other. So I'm, I'm trying to formulate that there's an artistic way of being kind of the outsider, bringing things to what's inside. And then there's this kind of activist 
thing that is outside, doesn't want to be inside, and then wants to tear down the system, wants to you know, smash the patriarchy or something like that, rather than serving the normal order and bringing it new ideas and, and showing it that, you know. The normal art order doesn't like new ideas. <laughs> People don't like that. <laughs> It's funny because like what I'm what I'm consistently praised for the most is what I'm also hated for the most. It's the same thing. What is you know, what is it? Anything, any quality I may have. Huh. Right. Like, you know, my honesty. Uh, some people hate that, <laughs> you know, my integrity. Some people like really admire it and they're like, oh, Nina, like keep doing what you're doing. But that's exactly, you know, like the fact that I'm not willing to call men women. Uh, that is an expression of my integrity and people hate that. Uh, you know, I don't really see art and activism for me as separate things. Like I just want to make art. I just, I want to say certain things, right. I wanted to make my, my turfy comic book, right. Cause I just wanted to, and I wanted people to be able to get it. And uh, it's that is very upsetting to some people, but it's not like it's not like carrying a sign or going to a protest or like I even though people are very provoked by me, my goal is not to provoke them like that is not what is motivating me. Yeah, Corinna doesn't believe me, but well, uh, it just doesn't uh, it doesn't motivate me. It doesn't motivate you what? Or, or provoking people does motiv motivate me. So oh, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't relate to to you saying that uh, you don't want to provoke people. Right? No, I don't. I just like I'll see this, I'll see this hole in honesty. I'll see a bunch of people saying stuff that's false, and not enough people saying something that's true. And I'm like, yeah. well, okay, I'm going to say something that's true. Then I'm just going to say it, and then people go bonkers. Mostly about gender, I, or is there, is there other yeah. topics that, yeah. Yeah, usually they're about sex. Like I said, I shared that thing on Facebook recently that just said sex is real, immutable, binary, and asymmetrical, and people went bonkers. So it's probably good that I said it. Is there, have there been points in your career and your life where criticism turned out to be helpful for you? Or pushback? Have you? Uh, how has your relationship to that changed over the years? Pushback. That's a great question. Um, unfortunately, for the world, I don't think it has ever helped. I think it has only hindered. And in fact, when I decided to make Sita sings the blues. I looked back on my life and the sort of criticism I had been given and I evaluated it and I was like, you know, I'm not right about everything. I'm really not. I make mistakes. But if I attended to the criticism that I got, my work would suck so bad. Hmm. Like I've been I've been right so much more than I've been wrong. Um, and when I've been wrong, it hasn't been stuff that critics have perceived. It's been something else. Hmm. And so I relied on that to make the film Sita Sings the Blues. 
because everybody, you know, everyone I talked to about it, I was looking for guidance and stuff. And the guidance I got was terrible, just absolutely terrible. And people would say, oh, you should do this. You should do that. And I'd just be like, well, it makes me feel sick. Like I would, I would try it a little bit and I'd be like, this, hmm. this feels totally wrong. Hmm. And what I actually needed to do was go like, I'm just going to trust my muse. It's like, I'm not perfect, but I know better than anybody else what my work should be like. So no, the pushback has not been edifying in any way. There are times when I ask explicitly for advice as an artist. And what I want to know is, um, usually what I want to know is, are people reading this the way I am trying to express it? So it's like, I know what I'm trying to communicate and it'd be like, I'd show somebody something. It's like, what do you see? And if they could basically describe what I was trying to communicate, then I'm like, okay, great. But sometimes they would describe something totally different. And I know that I was on the wrong track. I was not communicating what I was trying to communicate. Hmm. Other times it's just like, which t-shirt design would you buy? You know, would you rather have this or this? Red cover or blue cover for the comic book? Yeah, or, you know, like just, you know, color things. And, you know, which one do you like more? Like, I would just want to make the thing that people liked more. Uh, But that's about as far as it goes. What's the relationship for you between the message and your art and the art itself? Like The whole, like, using art as propaganda, as communication? Like, what, what, what are you, what's your... Like of a piece, I think. I mean, I I've made a little bit of didactic art. Uh, I did a series of shorts for QuestionCopyright.org, which is a nonprofit I'm involved with, and they were all about questioning copyright. Because the other thing is, I'm a copyright abolitionist. Oh wow! Okay. A whole weird thing, and you know, I think my didactic work is pretty good, but uh, most people prefer less didactic stuff as do I like it tends not to be really moving and for me to I mean I mean there there's like obviously issues that I'm really involved in like I knew that with the copyright abolitionism the way to really communicate not communicate that but the way to live my principles was not to spend my life making a bunch of didactic animations about copyright abolition it was to make the work that i was moved to make and to put it in the world uh without regard to copyright (laughs) so my second film Seder masochism it came after i had made these didactic pieces but what i really thought was all right i want to make a movie that moves me that is about something important to me where i completely disregard copyright and permission culture and i choose music for this movie based on nothing else than is does this music carry it does it move it along is it right for it that was actually really hard to do and then, of course, I freed the movie, but I was canceled for saying women don't have penises by that time. So it was pretty, didn't get very far. Hmm. What's Seder Masochism about? As my second feature film, it's about Exodus and Passover. And This Land is Mine is the last chapter of Seder Masochism. So you should watch the whole thing if you like This Land is Mine. Okay. 
And boy, it has a lot of stuff about gender and sex and goddess and god archetypes and the change change from goddess worship to male god monotheism. Do you think that the decay of patriarchy is worth it? Um, the order that was would shame men um, into not behaving as they are now and would guide men um, with the consequence of also guiding women. There would be more social control under a straightforward patriarchal order. Maybe more than a matriarchal order, but I don't know how we uh, define that. All right. So what you mean by the decay, is that the word you use? The decay of patriarchy is that there's like more and more women with institutional power. There's more and more women in administrative positions. Hmm. And I mean, there, there's more and more of a loss of, of male authority and culture. Like just on an artistic level, you can look at television and the way that dads are depicted nowadays are usually kind of their goofballs. They're weak. Um, there's just a, there's not really a strong male. Um, that's very much allowed nowadays. Um, and much culture. So just that decay. Um, and without that strong male authority, there's consequences. There's more freedom. The kids mm -hmm. can get away with a lot more. There's more delinquency, but also, you know, women can, you know, uh, possess positions of power too. So there's kind of a trade-off. It doesn't seem like we really dive into the trade-offs of fiddling with the culture as we have. Well, I think about Jordan Peterson, who uh, is a is a dad figure to a lot of young men who desperately need a dad figure and talks about that. So I think, yeah, I think that society needs better male role models. <laughs> I'm all in favor of that. Uh I don't know. What do you think, Corinna? More internet dads? Do we need more Jordan Petersons? No. <laughs> we need more actual dads. <laughs> actual functional dads. That sounds awfully conservative, Nina. It's funny. I'm thinking about, I've been thinking about you a lot lately, Corinna. Uh, and all the stuff that, I mean, I always think about Corinna because we see each other at least once a week. But um, this thing with like, dad archetypes and the strong dad and uh, the the phenon phenomenon of young men not wanting to be anything like their dads, not wanting, you know, to the point where they don't want to be male at all. Um, and then I also uh, I also have mentioned rom romantic desires having to do with you know trying to find the dad that we didn't have or the the male the the protective kind strong are you kidding is that, is that what women are looking for some wow i don't know i don't know i don't know what men are that's, looking that's, for that's actually really relatable <laughs> Um, I think, you know, I think 
people seek their seek the mother and the father they didn't have. I think there's a lot of wish fulfillment process in I mean a lot of romantic attraction has to do with trying to correct a a deficit from childhood which tends not to work. I was listening to um Ben Appel be interviewed by um uh Andrew Sullivan on Andrew Sullivan's podcast last week. And Ben Appel had t- related that when he was a young teenager that his mom was getting divorced and that his mom had used Ben as uh, an emotional support in a sense, almost like a, a replacement husband. And Andrew Sullivan had, his reply to that was like, oh, that's such a common thing with gay men. And I, I almost had to stop what I was doing for a minute because actually it was very relatable to me because my mom also was going through divorce at, at about the same time period uh, or age when, when I was a teenager and had also relied upon me in, in very similar ways for that sort of emotional support. And there's a part of me that's sort of wondering this question. I know it's very naive, probably. I, I'm probably the last person who should be wondering it. But I wonder if there's a part that when you are basically the emotional bondo in, in your mother's um, ego, that, that your job is to help fill in the parts of your mom that she can't do by herself. And I, I wonder if there's something about that that imprints on your psyche in a way that um, maybe you would be gay anyway. But maybe I wonder if that's something that you're, you're sort of a, a substitute mom in some ways, because you're parenting your parent, you're parenting your mom. And I wonder if that's something that makes uh, wanting to have a male partner feel, I don't know, like, like the, the parts click in better. How was your relationship with your dad? (laughs) (laughs) It's good. It was rocky for a bit there, but um, that's good. We moved past that. I was very, 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 very angry uh, for a period of time. Before that, we had uh, communication issues. Just a, a great man, but being so close to him was very difficult because he wasn't very open when I was maturing. So I, it was very difficult for me to feel close to him and, and, uh, and I really needed that. So I had to, I had to figure out how to, how to reconcile that and understand that he couldn't be that to me. So I had to kind of find that on my own, find that fatherhood or the, the father inside of me. And it was really interesting when I ended up going to Evergreen when I was 36 and I got on campus and girls started treating me weird. Like, why are you so angry at me? Like, why are you, why are you taking out your frustration? They would really take their frustrations out of me. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm a dad. Like I'm, I'm, I'm older now. Like they're projecting all their daddy issues on me. It was just so intense. You're like, well, I'm not going to, how do I relate to that? Like, well, I'm not going to relate to that because it's not my problem, girls, you know, and, you know, basically what you're going to 
get me into is a lot of trouble if I try to interact with that. So, you know, just kind of absent myself from that. But it was really interesting to see the tables had turns like, oh, I used to be I used to be 20 year old and, and angry at dad, you know, or have like really intense. I, I fell in love. Well, I didn't fall in love in a romantic sense, but I was I got incredibly obsessed with a man who was a couple of few years older than me when I was uh, 18, when I'm 19, 20, 21. And I just I idolized. He was always in my head. He was he was such a strong figure. I was obsessed with this man, it was kind of really embarrassing. Um, and it was just it just kind of overtook me to such a, an extreme degree that I think that was me trying to find a father that I wanted, right. Trying to select the father. And this man was, um, it was very, um, very philosophical and very, and he was a very intense, very philosophical man. He had a lot of personal power that was really understated. And so like, I just, I gravitated to him psychologically. It was really intense. It took me a while to like, understand that. But that was part of my breaking away from my father or trying to fill the gap of my dad. Um, I don't really think it did have a sexual component. It was kind of, it was, I would obsess about this guy. I'm like, do you think that even, I, I, I thought this out loud once. I'm like, does, does he even use the bathroom? Like I had put him in such a superhuman position. It was really weird. So I don't know what was that, what was going on there, but that's definitely a daddy issue that it was. How much older was he? I guess he was four years older than me, three years older than me. It's, it's really interesting because he ended up, I ended up moving where he came from. So I'm living where he came from. Uh, we met in Chicago and, and now I'm living in Olympia and he, he grew up in Olympia and now he's living in Chicago. It's kind of this weird, he's got the same birthday as my girlfriend too. This is like just this mm. weird confluence. What, what do you think the relationship was like from his point of view? Oh, I'm sure he was totally annoyed and embarrassed on my behalf. You know, eventually, um, eventually the infatuation phase wore off and, and I gave him room to communicate to me, but before them, I, there was no room for him to exist there. Cause I was projecting so hard. You, you know, you, when you're so into somebody that there's no there for them to be. Um, but eventually when my life started to break up, I, I kind of sought him out and he, he allowed me to engage with him because um, I, I kind of needed I needed actually um, uh, a role model um, or like a counsel. I need some counseling, and, and he was uh, kind enough to grant me that. Um, but yeah, Are you still friends? No, we were never really friends. But um, hmm. uh, but I I mean I I founded my entire uh, epic is based around this image of him that I had. Like my my artistic work is radiates from the fuel that that the the intensity of what I was seeking for in him, which is which is a very ma it's a, my masculine work. Like I have a feminine mythology and a masculine mythology, and the masculine mythology is twenty years of me refining. Um, what I saw in him, this character that I saw in him and, and pursuing that God, um, to the, to the end of, uh, the logical end or the narrative end of his arc. I'm, I'm pretty much post-sexual now. Uh, but I, I was often attracted to men that I wanted to be like, so they would have some, I don't know, skill or they would have figured out something about the world that I would want. 
and I would even ask myself why while I was attracted to them it's like you know why why am I so attracted and it's like well I do want that you know like I do want to travel around the world speaking at conferences I do want to I don't know have this or that position in life and I don't really know what that was about but I I do feel like now I've internalized everything I needed to internalize it's like, yeah, I, I kind of have all this stuff inside me now. Hmm. I ate the men. I ate them. <laughs> maybe this is just a phase you're going through, Nina. Maybe you'll maybe be uh, post-post-sexual. Maybe. Anything's possible in this world. I have about 20 years left to live. <laughs> the right hormone cocktail will get you... Jimmy and and Jamie and all over again. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty content this way. So, when thinking about giving advice to younger people about romance and and sex, what what have you guys, um, if you guys have ever thought about that? Because um, it seems like some <laughs> some children are lost right now. Kids are lost right now, and they're they're getting fed a lot of ideas by our institutions that maybe you agree with, maybe you don't. I just had to sit through a gender sexuality um, thing for my job today, um, which mm. is basically about grooming kids. Um, oh. uh, I know how we should answer this. I should answer for Corinna. Corinna should answer oh, for me. Oh, okay. That's fun. That's fun. I should give kids Corinna's advice. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Nina, what's Corinna's advice for, for youth relationship advice? Have some sexual experience before you get your balls cut off. Do that first. Use it before you lose it. Use it before you lose it. Yes. <laughs> That's Sorry. pretty intense. Okay. How's, how's Corinna going to roll with that? I guess uh, if I had to give uh, Nina's advice, then it would be if you really, if you really do need to have a long-term partner. You need to be ready to talk about having kids. And if you don't want a long-term partner, then you also have to be ready to talk about having a, a, a limit to the length of the relationship. Because of kids. Because of kids. Some, some couples, some people find each other without finding kids in their relationship. Yeah, I, I, I agree that it doesn't have to only be kids, but I think if the thing that you're going, trying to achieve is the long haul, that making sure that that's uh, up front, because I think that's probably going to be something harder to negotiate without kids than with kids. You know, I did that. I always did that. And I will say that that advice does not yield good relationships. You clearly... That is insufficient. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I was always See, real upfront about that. I, I was so nice not to negate your your uh, ad advice that I would give. Well, would you? You can negate it if you want. Go ahead, cut your balls off before you have sex. <laughs> well, I don't. Th I don't think it's only like I, I think that that's really a, a simple way of saying it. I would say yeah. that it's a crass way. I, I use like. Well, it was crass uh, beyond it being crass because, you know, it's, it's all, all, it's all right. That's on brand for both of us is crassness. 
but I radical think real, honesty. Oh yeah. The, the heart of it though, is that there are some people who I think when they have sex, it's just easy for them to do it. Even if it's their first time, there's, it's probably less awkward. They're more prepared. They're more psychologically ready. But I think for a lot of young people, they're, they're not ready. And it's not going to feel good or okay or satisfying the first time or the second time or the, the fourth or fifth or ninth time. And that for... They're doing it wrong. <laughs> well, they, they might not be doing it. Okay, they might be doing it wrong, Benjamin, or it could be that they don't have enough trust with their partner it could be that they have too much anxiety to to enjoy it. There, there could be all sorts of things that, that make it so that they're not really ready to have that physical bonding experience, but that they shouldn't necessarily give up on trying to find somebody who they are physically compatible with, because it might take a few times to, to find that person. Hmm. And even once you found that person, it might take a, a few experiences before you have uh, the the amount of, of trust and um, communication with before that sexual experience is good and you shouldn't you shouldn't take your first couple of experiences and your takeaway from those of uh, that wasn't what I wanted it to be that that shouldn't be the basis of your rationale for radically changing your body um, mm. it might just be something that you have to do a number of times before you learn to do it in a way that that's enjoyable for you. Also don't cut your balls off until you've tried this a few times. Yeah. And for me, you know, I don't think there's any advice that makes it easy or, or better. Uh, It's I, I, sex is something people. Okay. Well, I do think sex is something people have to figure out for themselves. There is no external answer to your own sex. I think porn is bad. That is one of the reasons I have a problem with porn. It's one of the reasons I have a problem with actual, you know, excessive sex scenes in movies that aren't considered porn and even relationships as depicted in media. I have a bit of a problem with because all of this is like external stuff that we cannot help but want to imitate because that's the nature mm. of culture. Hmm. But this is something sex is sacred in that you need to experience it firsthand. And the more media and other yeah. people's ideas about it that you put into your head, the less you're going to be able to do that. And I think that's why adults are so anxious about their kid's sexuality. It's like, you can't go there with your kid. You, that's like part of being an adult, you know, like se sex is, is part of becoming an adult. Adults are sexual. And there are these parents that want to be involved in their kids' sex lives. And it's like, you can't like sex. If your kid, your kid has to differentiate from you and has to, yeah. You know, they're going to mm. have sex and that's part of that and yeah. leave them the hell alone and let them experience this for themselves. It's for them. You can't, you can't go there with them. Yeah. I think even sex ed is just not a good idea other than I, biological well, stuff. It's just, Oh, 
Yeah. Now, the biological stuff is important, but I'm, I'm creeped out by these people. They're like, we need to teach our kids about pleasure and make sure that they know and consent how to ask for pleasure and focus on their pleasure. It's like, no, you do not need to teach your kids about that. <laughs> They're going to figure it out for themselves. And, you know, like you need to show them how to not get pregnant and let them know what pregnancy risks are and and that. But leave them alone. Yeah. 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 I think uh, ideally it would be for me to young people be as naive as possible. Like you were saying about media. Uh, Don't don't watch porn before you've had sex at least right just steer stay as far away from graphic sexual depictions as possible because the moment the transaction the the more you are in that moment the more that moment will matter and the more you're going to know what to do and enjoy it and if you come in with preconceptions other than just like kind of fears anxieties stuff like that with regard to the fear and anxiety that is about trust, like you were saying. Find 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 somebody that you adore, and it's not. Don't take sex out of. Don't isolate sex from the human being. Like like consume the entire human being. Adore and make love to the entire human being. Their laugh, their smile, their 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 ears, the shape of their back, like the 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 entire thing. If if you're gonna do it, possess. Be possessed and possess in toto, in 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 in, to, in a totality. Um, that 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 is when sex becomes something more than just this erotic thing, this pleasurable thing. It becomes this moment where you can achieve a unity and a fulfillment of what you are as a human being that is different than anything aside certain forms of spiritual experience like when things happen you you you're you're something else you become something else and every depiction of sex is a lie it can only show it can only show the the outside it can't show the inside there's certain maybe erotic poems or or i and i've I've written a lot of sex scenes trying to get trying to capture like that where where it's no longer sex like there's this transition to another phenomenon, another state of being. Wow. And, and it, sounds like and you've it, had really good sex, Benjamin. Sounds like well, you've had really good sex. I would say anyone who's listening to Benjamin here, don't expect it to be like that. Don't <laughs> There's expect nothing it. Wrong. There's yeah, my, nothing my, wrong with you, okay? My best Fine. advice for, for young people is wait till you get a little bit older and then have sex with Benjamin. No, 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 It's such a heavy investment. It's such a huge production um, that it's kind of like, I, I can't, I can't, I don't think I can do it anymore, but I'm just, I just want to put that out there as, as a possibility, like great you know, sex, sex becomes something else. Menopause, Benjamin, come on. Go through menopause. I'm going to get a tubal <laughs> ligation. I think you can do that to a guy, right? I got tubes down in there. Oh, that's called yeah. a vasectomy, but that, that doesn't no. do anything to your sex drive. Okay. No. It, yeah. I know. I, I, I'm a little embarrassed. So yeah, take everything that I said as a complete fiction. Just go no, fuck. Sounds, on the, just go fuck. Sounds amazing. I mean, your body does produce 
all kinds of hormones when you're falling in love and, and mating, and you will get high as hell off of those. So, yeah. I mean, I I look at... There are a lot of... There are some radical feminists who seem to think that women women only bond and mate and desire men because they've been socialized to. And I'm like, no, like when I was horny and it was more than horny, right? Like I also wanted love and understanding and yeah. communion and the whole shebang. Um, but I say horny because so much of it had to do with my hormones, I think, because now I know what it's like to not be riddled with this. And so much of it just, it just seems like a, it wasn't coming from me, you know, like it wasn't coming from me, my personality, my ego. It was an incredibly primal thing that was happening that I really think is physical. But when it comes to sex and hormones and really any drug that is in your system, you can't really separate these things out. You can't, you can't know what aspect of this is your mind, your soul, your body, your heart, your ovaries malfunctioning. Hmm. <laughs> Rohypnol, if someone's put that in your beverage, <laughs> you, you can't really know. <laughs> and that's fine. Uh, and if you, you know, the, the other danger is if you try to make everything safe and try to make sure that you don't get hurt, that's a recipe for nothing working. You will get hurt. And yeah, you're going to get hurt. You're going to suffer. So Nina, are you going to just let them cancel you? How are you going to get this comic book into the hands of your desirous audience? Yes. Well, all dozens, dozens of those clamoring for the comic book can order autographed copies at heterodorks.com slash hag. Uh, oh. But also at Corinna's urging, I am making a new comic, a whole new comic that should be able to launch on Indiegogo because it is compliant with all of their terms. Wait, you're going to trust that company again? Well, I'm complying with all of their terms. Well, is there not a like company that you can trust that won't cancel you? Is there another crowdsourcing? I mean, there's this there's this Give Send Go platform, which is a Christian donation platform, and I actually have I have a project up there which I oh. can also show. Uh, it's these apocalypse animated lenticular cards. Um. Which I think lenticular cards are super cool, right? Ooh. Wow. And it has the, the relevant. Yeah, this is the book of Revelation. Yeah, there's the. Ooh. Wow. So that one I'm crowdfunding for on Give, Send, Go, partly because it is, you know, Christians are a good target audience for this particular <laughs> project since they are. <laughs> the book of revelations biggest fandom but also they say they don't cancel anybody 
Oh, oh no. Yeah, it's the beast. These are I'm not sorry. in order. Anybody, by the anybody way. listening to the podcast? She's showing us these uh, 3D cards or these lenticular cards. Which what's that? They're kind of holographic. What are they called? There's another word for them. They're lenticular. lenticular. I mean, yeah. they're they're not holographic. They're kind of moving uh, moving images because of the way that they're printed on these ridges and stuff. They're yeah, these, really so each, trippy and beautiful. Each ridge is a lens, and the lens shows you a piece of the picture at a time so you can you can use them for 3d effects if you if if they're printed with the ridges vertical and you can use them for animation effects if they're printed horizontal like they are here anyway the issue with give send go is that they don't have perks tools so i want oh, okay yeah. i want these rewards to be available but people are gonna have to go on faith which makes sense it's a christian site Okay. Uh, yeah. So they're just going to have to put their money in and believe if they put in certain amounts that I will send them Extra. the promised card sets when I print them. But that's going pretty well. Okay. Um, but no, in Indiegogo has to be what I use for compliance comments because the whole point of compliance comments is that it complies with Indiegogo. Why would you comply, though? All these years of not complying, now you're going to comply to an internet company called Indiegogo? Well, people are expecting me to learn. I mean, I think maybe I've <laughs> learned my lesson and should be making art in accordance with hidden trust and safety teams that are unaccountable to anyone. I think that's what culture maybe should be. I ought to at least give it a try, <laughs> right? Okay, I guess. <laughs> Why would you compliant? give them your money, though? What, what does it mean to be compliant? Yeah. Well, it means to not possibly have anything in the comic that could possibly violate their terms but the, of But it goes beyond your comic. It's just you can't be any sort of person that goes beyond their views. It's not about your comic. It's about who you are. It's about your belief system. Even if it doesn't appear in the comic, it connects to you. And if they connect to your comic and your com comic connects to you, then they connect to your ideas, your really bad, nasty ideas about asymmetry and immutability of the sex characteristics, right? Like the round robin of... Nasty! Guilt by association. <laughs> so yeah, you're like, you're like King Midas. Everything turns into gender that you touch. Queen, Queen uh, Midas. Um... Well, I would like to think that these companies act with integrity and that their stated terms of use in their stated policies, that the reason they state their policies like this is so that people can have an expectation of, you know, the terms that they're going to enforce, and then they'll enforce according to those policies. So, I mean, this would demonstrate that, right? that compliance comics, you know, that they that they follow their own policies. They should. I think everybody has that expectation of Indiegogo. Huh. Um, people have said, you know, when I complained about being canceled, they said, oh, but you violated their terms of use. And I said, oh. well, I don't think I did. And I'm, ask I'm still waiting for them to yeah. explain. But uh, they insist that there's an explanation for it. And it's like, well... I know that compliance comics will absolutely comply with their terms oh, of use. Okay. So Is it going to be interesting at all? Well, Can you comply you seen the pages? Have you seen the pages? I have not seen a page. Oh, I emailed them to you. Oh, um, you did. 
I did. Or I emailed you a link, a link to uh, compliance, a PDF. I made a PDF just for you. Okay. So you can see compliance comments. Oh, shoot. Sorry. What? What are you doing, Corinna? He's lecturing me on Twitter. He's he's canceling me right now. Corinna's canceling you? No, I heard some noise. No, that was me. I'm, I'm premiering, uh, I I spoke with an Irish farmer last week and, um, he talked, talked about manhood and masculinity and now he takes these ex-cons out in the forest and forces them to cut down trees that are impossible to cut down until he breaks their souls and opens them up and puts them back together again. Is there a way that we can watch? Yeah. Yeah. We should actually wrap up the recording. No, I mean, I mean, is there a way that we can watch? Irish ex-cons cut down yeah. trees. Oh, oh, you actually want to see the sexy Irish ex-cons cutting down the physical trees. I don't have any footage yeah. of that, no. Corinna, you should do that. You should do story. that program. If it really uh, works, if they break you down and put you back together. I'm going to have to, first of all, learn Irish, which is no small feat. <laughs> they don't pronounce the letters right. And then I'd have to commit a crime in Ireland, which I'll have an opportunity to do in a couple of days. Oh, yeah, yeah, you guys are going to Ireland now. I'm going to go to Ireland, it looks like, in the end of August for a Genspect showcase. I'm going to be the chief interviewer of all the funky people out there. Um, Should be amazing. Mm. But you guys are going now, so you'll get exposure. Um, Maybe you'll find an ex-con to chop down a tree for you. No, Corinna should be able to try. Corinna should get an opportunity to chop down the tree. You, you know, I can't build muscles because I don't have testosterone. <laughs> you have muscles? <laughs> Your face know, is moving as we speak. I, I, can't, I can't build up the, the, chi- the big tree chopping muscles. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm going to have to go and just gently pull up little saplings. <laughs> In a frolicsome manner. But apparently even, even the really brawny guys are not able to chop down these trees. No, it's really hard. He goes, Don't there's a whole story bad. about it. No, Don't no, feel it's bad about it, Corinna. Yeah. I'm not feeling bad. I'm only feeling bad that I'm not going to get to watch. <laughs> you can hear okay. the story. It's on my YouTube channel. It's premiering right now. But let's wrap all up the right. recording. Heterodorks podcast. Where can people find your, your, your work, your mutual work, and, and your individual work, Nina and Corinna? Heterodorks.com is where you can find the Heterodorks podcast. You can also find it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Yeah, mm-hmm. wherever your podcasts are uh, gotten from, it'll be there. And yeah. is there a Nina Paley website or you do everything mm-hmm. through the Heterodorks branding now? No, I have a blog. It's ninapaley.com. But because ninapaley.com redirects to blog.ninapaley.com and because I'm terrible at HTML, I don't know how to put my stuff on ninapaley.com pages. So I'm putting the PDFs and stuff on heterodorks pages because at least I can do that through WordPress. Oh, okay. Interesting. What a conundrum. <laughs> and Corinna, are you, you're only active on Twitter in, in this podcast then, huh? Do you have a Substack or something like that? that I do have on? a Substack. It's corinnacone.substack.com and I need to do some more writing. Yeah? What yeah. do you need to tackle next? Oh, you know, I'd like to write a little piece about why I don't use non-binary pronouns for people. What is a non-binary pronoun? Well, there's the most typical one is they and them, which is that a, a, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl has requested that the people around them 
alter their use of grammatical English to replace sex-based pronouns like he and she with a neuter pronoun like they or them. But I, I do not do that. But I need to write out why. So that's, that's a hmm. project I need to do. Colin Wright on his uh, Reality's Last Stand just hosted a uh, series of letters debating that topic. I haven't read through it, but I know that it's out there. So you're part of that conversation, too. I'm, I'm writing a... Reclaiming I'm writing... your language. What are you writing, Nina? Oh, I'm writing a thing about why I call Corinna him. Which I didn't think was a big thing, but we Is it went a big to thing? A, well, we went to an event where everyone else was referring to Corinna as she. And this included people, you know, like lots of people that know Corinna is male will refer to Corinna as she. And I do that. And there's been a discussion on Twitter as well. And I'm frequently challenged about this. And it is not just because I have a policy of using sex-based pronouns, I actually see Corinna as a man. And that's a, I feel weird saying that because I know so many other people yeah. don't. I'm an adult human male. But I do, so there's like, there's no cognitive dissonance or anything. There's like, even though my, my policy is even when I do have cognitive dissonance, I will use sex-based pronouns. That is not what's going on. And somehow, Corinna's existence persists through this, um, this assault of, uh, of pronoun realism that you're foisting upon Corinna. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Although we've worked out in an arrangement where my therapy bills are actually oh, there you sent go. to her insurance to, so oh, that right. I can manage to get my day to day. <laughs> and I also have to buy a lot of Kleenex oh, yeah. for her to wipe his tears. Oh, okay. Good. Okay. Yeah. I've, yeah. There's so many different bodily fluids no, no, that no. jump to mind. It's just for tears. Okay. Yeah, there we go. Good. White trans tears. <laughs> oh man. You should make a, you should have that <laughs> coffee mug sold on your, uh, White trans tears. Oh, <laughs> I yeah, um, yeah. My my attempts to genocide Corinna have failed over and over again, but I will keep Stop trying. Stop genociding me! Stop genociding me! <laughs> you can tell that I'm motivated by hatred. Oh yeah, the deepest sort though. Yeah, for sure. It's actually quite admirable. She's she's got some really passive aggressive ways of showing how much she hates hates me, like. Uh, when we go out to get Chinese food, she'll get a vegetarian dish because she knows I can't enjoy it. Oh. You like numb oil tofu. That's what I tell you. <laughs> okay, now we're getting into the weeds of this. All right, don't even start on the mayo Beautiful thing. friendship that's, that's that you gonna, two That's going to rip us apart. I'm going to end the recording. Thank you both for joining me. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Benjamin. Thanks, Benjamin. Bye.